You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. For two weeks in late November and early December, Paris will host the United Nations Climate Change Conference. Obviously, security is heightened in the City of Light following the terrorist attacks, and public rallies planned around the climate conference have been banned as a precautionary measure. But the talks will continue. Global leaders have one goal that, on the one hand, is quite simple, but on the other is frustratingly complex. Achieve agreement on how to address climate change. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get the wide-angle view on science and technology, and in this episode, what to expect from the climate change talks in Paris, how Pope Francis' encyclical might shape the debate, and whether it represents a radical departure from the Church's attitude towards science. But first, a story ripped from the pages of a Hollywood screenplay. We hear a lot about how the oceans are changing. They're warming. They're becoming more acidic due to dissolved carbon dioxide, and that is degrading coral reefs. But here is a new consideration. What if the motion of the ocean slowed down or even stopped? That is the premise of the Hollywood deep freeze drama The Day After Tomorrow. Here, paleoclimatologist Jack Hall, played by Dennis Quaid, explains the basics of ocean circulation to leaders at a United Nations climate meeting. The Northern Hemisphere owes its temperate climate to the North Atlantic Current. Heat from the sun arrives at the equator and is carried north by the ocean. But global warming is melting the polar ice caps and disrupting this flow. Eventually, it will shut down. And when that occurs, there goes our warm climate. And because this is Hollywood, what he predicts begins to come to pass later that same afternoon. Local weather suddenly goes wacky. Snow blankets New Delhi. Grapefruit-sized hail pummels Tokyo. The Atlantic spills into Manhattan's gridiron and freezes faster than a puddle at the South Pole. And before New Yorkers can grab their keys and head for the Berkshires, a superstorm turns the Great White Way literally white as the Big Apple and the rest of the Northern Hemisphere settle into a new ice age. So, is the day after tomorrow faction or fiction? Well, mainly fiction. Call it cli-fi or climate fiction. The 2004 film made the top ten list of the most scientifically inaccurate movies. One scientist chided, This film is to climate science as Frankenstein is to heart transplant surgery. But the story doesn't end with the rolling of the credits. The climate disaster in the day after tomorrow had to do with the motion of the Atlantic Ocean circulation system. And the ocean circulation system is fact. It's called the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, or AMOC. It moves substantial amounts of heat across the planet, taking the warmer waters of the lower latitudes to the cooler upper latitudes. Now, this circulation allows England to have a relatively mild climate, even though parts of Canada at the same latitudes are frequented by polar bears. As warm water in the northeast-bound Gulf Stream passes by Greenland on its way to England and Norway, it both partially evaporates, making it saltier, and it is cooled. These two effects, becoming saltier and cooler, make the water denser so it sinks, which produces a deep current that eventually returns to the southern hemisphere. That's reality. In the film, The Day After Tomorrow, 
the current stops moving due to an influx of fresh water brought about from the melting of the polar ice caps. The fresh water is less salty, so it's less dense and it doesn't sink. The circulation stops, the planet cools, and supercell storms quickly coalesce to form the mother of all ginormous winter storms. Jack, were you able to recreate the thermal cycle? Yes. The storm's rotation is pulling supercooled air all the way down from the upper troposphere. But shouldn't the air warm up before it reaches ground level? It should, but it doesn't. The air's descending too rapidly. Is this an isolated incident? I'm afraid not. This one storm is going to change the face of our planet. When this storm is over, we'll be in a new ice age. Again, the film is fiction. However, here's the thing. When The Day After Tomorrow was released, there hadn't yet been any research that actually examined what an interruption of the AMOC would do and whether global warming could produce it. But now that situation has changed, and largely due to this scientist and his team. My name is Sibren Greifout. I am a climate scientist at the Netherlands Meteorological Institute and a professor of climate dynamics at the University of Southampton. Dr. Dreifout wanted to see what the Earth's tipping points might be. So he used an advanced climate model at the Max Planck Institute in Germany to simulate the sort of global warming conditions that would produce a massive melt and dump fresh water into the North Atlantic. The result? The chance that this major ocean circulation system would actually shut down is indeed rather slim, but it's not zero. So it's really bringing warm waters from the Indian Ocean across the equator to the northern parts of the North Atlantic, and there that heat is released to the atmosphere. Okay, so this is important in determining climate uh, in both hemispheres, I would imagine. Oh yes, absolutely. If this circulation would shut down, the southern hemisphere would warm, and the northern hemisphere would really cool. Well, let's consider that, because you've done some climate modeling here to see what would happen if, if this circulation changed, and in particular what would happen if a continuous source of cold, fresh water was added to the AMOC over, uh, say, a century time period from 2000 to, say, 2100. Where did this cold water come from in your model? I mean, where did you assume it was coming from? Okay, the, the model is really, or the model experiment was really a what-if scenario. So what happens in reality if this circulation shuts down? Because we wanted to know the, the, the real effects and not the effects as seen in the movie The Day After Tomorrow. For this reason, we dumped into the ocean much more fresh water than in any realistic scenario would ever happen. We would just wanted to hit the system as hard as we could to really get this circulation down. In reality, this water could come from melting and iceberg calving from Greenland and enhanced rainfall. All right, so you considered what would happen. I mean, you're, you're modeling this. You're just you know, trying to figure out what would happen if from some source, maybe melting ice of Greenland is dumped into the North Atlantic. What happened? What happened to Earth's climate as a result of this? What happens is that the salty waters that are coming from the Caribbean and the tropics are very much diluted and become so fresh and light that even if they cool to the freezing point, they won't sink anymore. So this whole circulation that is bringing the warm water to the north stops. And that has an, quite a fast and dramatic effect in terms of temperature over the northern hemisphere, especially in Europe. Uh, there the climate will become colder for two to four degrees, depending again exactly where you are. Degrees Celsius, so Fahrenheit is a bit more. And that is really, really a, a big change that, that makes the climate from France look like the climate from, from southern Norway or, or that kind of shifts, which is dramatic enough. In England, the cooling would become even stronger and would really change the climate in England to something we have called... Uh, the Little Ice Age, uh, which was around uh, 1700. So people could skate again on the River Thames. Well, maybe not every year, but quite regularly. And in Scotland, it would be even more than four or five degrees. So that would really become a climate very close to Iceland. 
would this be in some sense fatal for Europe, for Western Europe? Because, you know, you talked about the little ice age and I've I looked at those paintings by Bruegel. <laughs> you know, they were yeah, painted yeah. more or less at that time. It looked like, a you know, just a fun winter time. Lots of uh, lots of skating and people cavorting in the snow. But it sounds like the effects might be actually more significant than that. They will be slightly more significant. Of course, there is also a fun element uh, if it gets colder. If you like skiing and snowing, it's fun. But if it's really colder, then, for instance, crop yields will go down drastically and we already have problems to feed the whole world. So that wouldn't be a good thing uh, to happen. Let me talk to you a little bit about the film The Day After Tomorrow. Now, in that movie, the melting polar ice caps have added enough fresh water to the North Atlantic to disrupt its flow, and there are dramatic changes in climate, and they occur over just a few days. Now, is that the way it plays out in your model? I mean, is that the time scale? No, no, absolutely not. This was one of the aspects that was completely unrealistic in the model. Um, First of all, the the freshwater was coming from a large ice sheet or plate from Antarctica and it's completely impossible that that ice from Antarctica would move in a few days to the North Atlantic and does not get somehow diluted when it crosses the equator or so. So that's completely impossible. Also, when the freshwater is starting to uh, dilute and to lighten the surface waters where the sinking occurs, before that sinking completely stops, that really takes something like 10 years or so, which is still quite fast, I would say, on every timescale of experience. Uh, It would still be quite abrupt change, but certainly not uh, as abrupt and dramatic as in the film. But of course, A film wants to concentrate its story in a few days instead of a few years, of course. So that's much more dramatic. Yes, yes. uh, Tough on the plot if you have to wait 10 years for something to happen. But, you know, when that film came out in 2004, a lot of climate scientists kind of piled on and said, well, this is totally unrealistic. But now, you know, you've done these studies and it sounds like, at least in part, what they were showing there, yes, the, the source of the fresh water might not be a major ice sheet in Antarctica, but snowing in New Delhi, tornadoes devastating Los Angeles, temperatures falling to, I think in the film, they went to, you know, 100 or more degrees below zero. That all sounds like fiction, but is there a change in the attitude of uh, the climate scientists now, thanks to your, your work? Well, that is difficult to say. Again, I agree that the effects were overdramatic and physically impossible and unrealistic. What we try to do is set up a model. So if this occurs, what are then the real consequences? And the real effect is still quite dramatic. I mean, the temperature changes are four or five times as fast as we witnessed, say, in the end of the 20th century during global warming. Well, that is a message we have to bring to the public and we have to bring to the politicians because this is a possible consequence of climate change. And this is something that should be discussed in the big negotiations in in Paris. I always say if you would rebuild the Twin Towers or a Golden Gate Bridge with a 1% chance that it would collapse with all the people in it, that would completely be forbidden. We wouldn't allow uh, such unstable buildings. But this is the game we are playing. We are now playing a climate change game where there is a chance, small, say 1%, that something equally dramatic will happen. And yeah, we should do, I think, our best to try to stop this. Sebrin Dreifout, thank you so very much for speaking with us today. It was really enjoyable. Sebrin Dreifout is a physical oceanographer and climate scientist at the Netherlands Meteorological Institute and at the University of Southampton. His work suggests that there is a possibility that climate change could halt the ocean circulation and that Europe, in particular, would be affected. But it's an outlier scenario. Meanwhile, the reality of climate change moving in slow motion but still dramatic is unfolding now. Glaciers are melting, sea levels are rising, and heat waves are longer and more intense. These changes affect everyone, but the brunt of their impact is on the most vulnerable, those in poor areas, low-lying coastal regions, and developing countries. Virginia Burkett is the Associate Director for Climate and Land Use Change at the United States Geological Survey and is among the Nobel Prize-winning authors of the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's Fourth Assessment Report. Virginia, 
if we do nothing to curb climate change, or even if we do do something and just slow it down, why will the less developed countries be hit especially hard? Seth, that's because people who are socially, culturally, politically, or otherwise marginalized are especially vulnerable to the risk associated with climate change. Climate change is a threat multiplier. Well, maybe you could expand on that. Uh, In what sense is it a threat multiplier? How does it... uh... Well, it exacerbates other stressors by impacting livelihoods, crop yields, human health, causing the direct destruction of homes, or even political instability. Our recent United Nations report on climate change concludes that violent conflict increases the vulnerability of developing countries or any country to climate change. Well, then give me some specific examples of the kind of change you're talking about and, you know, where is it likely to happen? There's strong consensus globally that climate change has already caused impacts on people and natural systems on all continents and across the oceans. And some hot spots would be the Arctic, for example, where permafrost is thawing and high-latitude regions causing the collapse of coastal landforms. And Native American communities along the Arctic coast are having to retreat. Uh, Another example is drought frequency, which is expected to increase in regions that are already water-scarce, large areas of Africa to be affected. Uh, The loss of glaciers in South America and Asia are threatening water supplies already. Many low-lying developing countries like Bangladesh and Vietnam and small island states are expected to face very high impacts and damages and adaptation costs associated with sea level rise alone. Aren't there some countries that could literally disappear because of sea level rise? Uh, Yes, sir. Some of the islands may be rendered uninhabitable. Atoll islands, for example, have very limited on-island relocation opportunities. Island examples are the Marshall Islands, Kiribati, Tuvalu, the Seychelles, you know, and numerous other small islands. Now, Virginia, it's not just vulnerable developing countries that will be hit, but vulnerable areas in developed countries as well. You've worked in many official capacities to protect Louisiana when you lived there as director of the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries and of the Louisiana Coastal Zone Management Program, among others. Can you give me a specific example or tell me a story of how coastal communities in Louisiana are vulnerable? Oh, certainly. Coastal communities, most of coastal Louisiana is deltaic landform, and the delta is sinking due to its own weight and human development activities. So at the same time sea level is rising, the land is sinking, and so the landforms that protect the people, the barrier islands and the marshes and the forest, are all sinking, and many of them are disappearing and being converted rapidly to open water. So the loss of that natural system to protect the coastal communities has increased their vulnerability. Hurricane Katrina is the perfect example. My parents lost their home in in Katrina. They live in actually coastal Mississippi. About 65% of the world's cities, the world's megacities with populations over 5 million, are all located in this low-elevation coastal zone. And the greatest exposure in terms of population is, is in Asia. And many of the large cities in the deltas and coastal plains of that region of the world are sinking just like New Orleans is sinking. There's been a four-meter loss in elevation in eastern Tokyo, three meters in the Po Delta, 2.6 meters in Shanghai, and 1.6 meters in Bangkok. These people that inhabit these deltas and these low-lying coastal plains are highly vulnerable to any acceleration of sea level rise. And by the end of the century, we're looking at upwards of one meter or more due to the combination of land ice melt and thermal expansion of the ocean. Well, Virginia Burkett, I want to thank you for speaking with us today. It was my pleasure, Seth. Virginia Burkett is the Associate Director for Climate and Land Use Change at the United States Geological Survey. The poor are the most vulnerable to climate change, and because of that, the central message of Pope Francis's encyclical is that we have a moral imperative to take action to stop it. Is accepting the scientific conclusions of climate change a departure for the church on matters of science? An historian talks Galileo, Darwin, and the long dance of science and religion next. It's Climate Conversation on Big Picture Science.
A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. In June of this year, the Vatican released Pope Francis's encyclical on the environment. He revealed himself to be a green pontiff. In the document, he warns that if we don't act to stop climate change, we'll face an unprecedented destruction of ecosystems with serious consequence for all of us. We're all in this together, he says, but since mainly industrialized nations got us into this mess, they are obliged to help those most vulnerable to the consequences the poor. He reframed the debate around climate change from a techno issue to a moral one. He reiterated his message during his visit to the United States two months later. And so even if His Holiness does not attend the climate conference in Paris, his position on the matter surely will be felt. After all, Pope Francis speaks for the largest organized group of Christians in the world, numbering in the billions. Leading from a position of moral authority is not unusual for the church. That's what it does. But is it a departure to advocate the conclusions of scientific research? You might have a hazy memory of what happened to Galileo when he abandoned the earth at the center of everything philosophy that was still all the rage even in the early 17th century. The Catholic Church put Galileo under house arrest. But according to the director of the MIT Museum, John Durant, what actually happened to Galileo is a little more complex. The church at the time actually supported scientific inquiry. Still, says Dr. Durant, Pope Francis' position on climate change could be seen as a departure from tradition. I think it is rather unusual, certainly for the Judeo-Christian tradition, to hear quite such a strong statement, particularly in a fast-moving area. So environmental issues in general, of course, in historical terms, are of relatively recent origin. You don't have debates quite like this, for example, in the 19th century. In fact, the whole notion of environmental science and environmental awareness is a distinctively 20th century one. So there haven't been that many opportunities, to be honest, for the church to work out what it thinks about environmental issues. And this has to be, in that sense, a rather important move by part of the Christian community. So it sounds like uh, in accepting the science of climate change and and coming out with this opinion on it, this encyclical, the church is kind of departing from its historic relationship with science? Well, I wouldn't quite put it like that. I'm one of those people, I think there are many now, who would question whether the church has ever had a single and straightforward relationship with science. The church and different churches have had many different kinds of relationship with science, sometimes very constructive and supportive, and sometimes not. I think we need to look at particular areas, times and places to pick that apart. Well, I think that when many people think of the Catholic Church vis-a-vis science, they're going to think in terms of Galileo, who was, of course, put on trial for suggesting that the sun, not the earth, was the center of the universe. But is that an accurate reading of history? Was it really uh, the problem with the science that was at issue there? So that very famous, maybe better notorious episode has been much debated and much, I think, misunderstood. The fact is that in Galileo's day, the church was deeply involved with studies of what we would now call astronomy, studies of the universe. The issue between Galileo and the church was at the very least extremely complex and wasn't perhaps made easier by the fact that Galileo was keen to do theology for the church as well as to do what we would today call science, what he might have called natural philosophy. It was not a straightforward conflict. The notion that science and religion are in some sort of warfare one with the other actually doesn't really take hold in the Western world until the second half of the 19th century. 
It's quite a recent idea that science and religion are at odds with each other. Much more common right through Galileo's time was the notion that, as people sometimes said, science was the handmaiden of the church, that science and religion could walk step in step. You would have heard that said by many of the founders of modern science, including Galileo himself. But this walking step in step was not always easy, and sometimes one partner or the other tripped up. And of course, the trip up with Galileo was a very significant one. It left deep wounds on both sides. And in some ways, I think the Catholic Church has only made its peace with all of that in modern times. There is a relatively large fraction of the population, at least if you believe the polls, that say, you know, they don't believe in climate change. They don't think it's happening. This is, or if it is happening, it's not anthropogenic. It's not something we're doing. It's just a natural environmental change. I can't say that I know whether, you know, the majority of such people are of one faith or another. But do you think that this is actually affected, when I say this thing, I mean the encyclical, has affected the attitude of uh, many of the lay Catholics? I don't know if it has. I hope it has. There are some very interesting and I think rather puzzling and worrying things that have happened in the dialogue between science and faith in the United States in recent decades. And actually, I'd want to just mention here some of the Protestant traditions because they're of equal or greater significance in terms of U.S. public opinion. But it's been very unfortunate, in my view, that for all sorts of particular reasons in recent decades, large sections of rather earnest and devout Christian belief in American society have come to align themselves with a series of what are ultimately secular causes. And one of the causes that these Christian folk have aligned with is climate skepticism. Now, we could debate at great length why that happened. It was always a puzzle to me and a problem to me because I think that these folks were aligning with the wrong thing in terms of uh, where, where the evidence lay and where the needs lie. But I would want to say strongly, as someone who actually comes out of the Christian tradition myself and who cares about Christian faith, I would want to say there is no necessary link between Christian faith and climate skepticism, for heaven's sakes. And the sooner we can persuade people of faith to look more openly at the situation and not assume that their faith gives them a mandate to reject the findings of science in this area, the sooner we can persuade them to do that, the better. What about other faiths, such as uh, Islamic, uh, Jewish, Hindi, so forth? Has their science uh, run afoul of religious belief uh, to the same extent? The relationship between different faith traditions and science is endlessly complex. I think it's fair to say that uh, modern Judaism, at least in the West, has had a very different set of relationships with science, with some concerns in some areas, but not the same areas as, for example, many Catholics have or many Protestant Christians have. In the Islamic world, you have a similar complexity. We hear a lot about Islamic fundamentalism these days, and some forms of so-called Islamic fundamentalism have indeed chosen to take issue with a great deal of modern science, but that doesn't mean that all forms of Islam do that. So again, it's a rather textured thing, and I would want to argue that there's an inescapable responsibility for religious leaders from all of these traditions to think through their own values in relation to what the modern world of science and technology has to say. But the wholesale rejection of the consensus findings of science is a very big and most often a very unwise move for a faith tradition to make. It pits itself against the balance of judgment of the best experts in a field. And that's always a dangerous place for an upholder of a faith tradition to put themselves. John, one of your areas of expertise is Victorian science. Uh, during Victorian times, science and religion underwent dramatic changes. Uh, many scientific discoveries challenged the literal meaning of the Bible, from geology in the age of the Earth to biology in the origin of man. What was the nature of scientific discovery at the time that had such great impact? Was it simply there was more science being done? No, I don't think it was just that. I do think the 18th century in many areas of science was the great age of understanding things by classifying them, by ordering them. 
the 19th century was the time when many sciences came to see that a good way of understanding things was to understand where they came from. So the historical sciences, many of them, from earth science, geology, right through to the study of languages and where languages come from, took a largely historical turn in the 19th century. And so, of course, those sciences found themselves saying things about subjects that historical religions, in most particularly Christianity, also had things to say. So if you want to say something about where the living world comes from, it seems as if you're at least relevant to and maybe butting up against what traditionally Jews and Christians and Muslims have had to say about the way that God created the world. And that's what happened in the 19th century in many different ways. It forced a rethink on the part of many believers as to how they understood, in the end, the doctrine of creation. Well, obviously, the big figure there was Charles Darwin. Uh, And it seems to me that the effects from Charles Darwin's uh, theories is still being very much felt today. I mean, that that is a he was, if you will, the mother of all disruptors. <laughs> well, Darwin disrupted many things. He disrupted first and foremost natural history, his own field, because Darwin offered a radically new way of working with the living world to understand it better. So uh, numbers of naturalists found their own professional practice completely upended by Darwin, and we shouldn't forget how radical those changes were. But of course, his views were of great significance for many others. And once again, just as I've said with respect to more recent debates, you find people of faith in response to Darwin moving in many different directions. We hear a lot about those who were so uncomfortable with Darwin's work that they couldn't find a way of accepting it. But for example, I'm working here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's the home of Asa Gray, the leader of American botany in the in the middle of the 19th century. He was a good friend of Darwin's and in fact introduced Darwin's ideas, evolutionary ideas to American science and to American culture. But Asa Gray was a very devout Christian and he and Darwin became friends and had a long friendly correspondence about the implications of evolutionary ideas for religious belief. They never came to agree on it, but they disagreed very constructively and very amicably. But Gray is the kind of person who we don't hear so much about because he found ways of accommodating his Christian faith to the new findings of Darwin and the other evolutionists. What we hear about is the people who took a different route and chose to object. Well, finally, John, the church's interest in climate change, perhaps we're just looking at this wrongly. It's, it's maybe it's not really about the science at all. It's simply about the social import, like a, a crisis in food. It, it, it's about the well-being of the populace. Well, I think it is more about that. I think the church has mostly, and I would say at its best, been concerned for the welfare of humankind in the largest sense. We know that Pope Francis has a real concern for the poor and the disadvantaged, which again is a long-standing tradition within Christianity, certainly, and I think in many other faith traditions. And if you're going to be concerned for the world's most vulnerable today, given what we know about the interpenetration of human interests with the natural world, then it's I think quite understandable, maybe even inevitable, that you're going to be concerned about the natural environment. So I see what's happening as the Catholic Church is pivoting on the issue of climate change as being really, quite honestly, consonant with the overall position of that faith tradition over the long term, a position which says we're concerned about humanity and about vulnerable people as much as about anything else. John Durant. Thank you so very much for speaking with us. You're very welcome. John Durant is the director of the MIT Museum and teaches in the school's Science, Technology, and Society program. Certainly there's an interesting point here about the fact that uh, certain Christians have aligned themselves with being upset about climate science, and and that doesn't really make any sense. I mean, think about it. They don't seem to have any problem with other areas of science like quantum mechanics or relativity or any of that, I can understand when they might, you know, worry about things like Darwinian evolution because, after all, that might contradict Scripture. That's in Scripture. But climate science is not in Scripture, so I really don't get it. But as Durant points out, this whole idea that there's a conflict between religion and science, you know, that's a fairly new idea. It was never the case before, and I hope 
it's not going to be the case in the future. Well, so far we've heard a few issues that are in the news concerning climate change. But what can we actually expect from leaders when they meet in Paris to discuss it? A BBC reporter who is covering the meeting shares his insights. It's Climate Conversation on Big Picture Science. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, the Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less. So you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. So, what to expect from the climate conference in Paris? Well, here are some facts we know right off the bat. The conference is going ahead despite the terrorist attacks on the city, although France has banned public rallies that had been planned for the conference. Its official name is COP21, also known as the 21st Conference of the Parties to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. And thankfully, it has a shorthand, the 2015 Paris Climate Conference. It begins on November 30th and runs until December 11th. That's nearly two weeks of yakking and arguing. Representatives from 196 countries will be in attendance, including the leaders of the U.S., China, India, and Britain. Their two main goals, limit the emissions of carbon dioxide so as to keep global warming to under 2 degrees Celsius, that's 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit, and change the nature of how we do business on this planet. The very definition of activities we call progress. Those are the basic goals. Can you imagine filling in the details? Well, reporter Matt McGraw can. He's the environmental correspondent for the BBC, who's covered many of the UN climate meetings, including the key ones, Kyoto, Warsaw, Copenhagen, and now the 21st conference in Paris. Matt, I wonder if you could set the scene for us in Paris. Who will be there and where will they be? Will they all be in one conference room, one hotel, spread out all over this beautiful city? (laughs) The beautiful city is something I think most of the people going there won't actually see because the conference is going to take place in Le Bourget, essentially uh, an airport uh, complex in in one of the suburbs in the north of the city. So um, 50,000 people are expected, uh, environmentalists, campaigners, politicians, heads of government, uh, everybody is is expected to turn up. And the first couple of days will be taken up with uh, the leaders, heads of government, President Obama, President Putin, President Xi Jinping, uh, all the major players in the world will be there telling the world what they need to do to, to get it right on climate change. You know, it's the biggest thing we may see in our lifetimes if they get it right, because in some ways here, they're trying to break the mold on the way that the world has done development up until now, the way that the world has exploited resources up until now, the way that the world has used fossil fuels up until now. And if they get it right and get an all-encompassing, powerful deal that will set the seal on how we do these things into the future. It could be, you know, as significant as the Bretton Woods meeting that happened after the Second World War or any of the trade agreements that have taken place. In fact, more significant than those. So uh, it's my privilege to have an opportunity to be at this meeting, to see what's going on and to report on it as best we can, because we do feel and believe that it is a significant moment. Now, what is the bottom line? What is the goal that the delegates hope will emerge from this conference? Is it about limiting uh, the warming of the planet it to two degrees Celsius, which I believe is 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, And then the rest of the details don't matter, or is it all in the details as well? 195 parties each bring a different set of priorities to that negotiation and you have touched on the major ones that people will be will be negotiating on. Um, I think you know the, the idea that they will have a long-term goal is setting something for 2050 or beyond of whether the world decarbonizes its emissions, whether the world has two degrees as a target or 1.5 as many island states would prefer. Those things are still in the mix. There's also a huge question about money as as in every aspect of life, you know money, 
tends to dominate. And if the money isn't on the table, if the uh, the sums that the poorer countries want to say to help them to change their economies, to prepare for the worst impacts of climate change, if, if those monies aren't there, then a deal will not happen. So these are the major sticking points, if you like, and um, these are the things on which an agreement could fall apart on. Well, let's take a look at that limit of two degrees Celsius, the 3.6 Fahrenheit limit that is being proposed. Where did those numbers come from? Why those numbers? Why are they set as a limit? And what happens to the planet if we go above that? Yes, I mean, you could say that they're a rather arbitrary set of numbers. And in some respects, they're too. I think the, the two degrees barrier has been picked essentially for its simplicity in communicating the idea to the world and to politicians that there is a threshold beyond which we're not really sure of the impacts that rising temperatures would have on our planet. Because the science is fairly strong that beyond two degrees, you're getting into areas of serious uncertainty and serious ramifications for millions of people, particularly in poorer parts of the world. Now, the countries have had to do some hard work before they meet in Paris, and they've had, I believe, nine months or so to submit their plans for how they propose to reduce carbon emissions. And as of right now, where do those pledges stand from all of these different countries, and how far do they go in helping the delegates reach their goal? Yeah, this has been actually the most successful aspect of the negotiations over the last couple of years. Um, it, it's the idea that, you know, everything fell down in Copenhagen because the leaders tried to impose a deal from the top down. A small group of leaders said, look, this is what we're going to do and country X is going to do this and country Y is going to do this. And that didn't work. The, it was rejected wholeheartedly. So in the aftermath, they've gone back to the drawing board and they said, well, look, what if we get countries to put on the table what they think they can do? And that process has actually been, as simple as it sounds, has actually been very successful. At the moment, we've had pledges from over 150 countries, from about 87% of the global emissions countries responsible for those have put the pledges of what they're going to do about it on the table. If you add them all up, as the UN has done, they come to about 2.7 degrees of warming. Now, that's still beyond the danger level of 2 degrees, but it's an awful lot better than what it was even 12 months ago. Last uh, December, we were talking about 3.1 degrees Celsius. Now it's 2.7. And the UN says the direction it travels in the right direction. You know, if we can up these commitments over the next number of years if we can review them, then getting to two degrees is still really feasible. And that's given the whole UN organization a real boost. Even though these pledges are voluntary, they're not legally binding, they're what countries themselves pledge to do. But the hope is that the good commitments in those plans can be captured in a deal that will be put together at Paris and then made into a binding document that will really give effect to those good ideas. Well, everything you're saying so far sounds encouraging. And I'm wondering if this is this conference is going to be different from other conferences, because as you've said, we've gone into these conferences over and over, everyone feeling that the momentum was building, that it was an important conference, we were feeling optimism, and then no real binding agreement has come out of any of these conferences. You've been following this for a long time, Matt. Is this different this time around? Will Paris be different? Oh, I wish it would be. Um, I, the last time around in Copenhagen, it was, you know, people had great expectations and it fell apart. And there were a number of key things that went wrong. You know, they came into Copenhagen with 300 pages of negotiating text to produce a deal from. It was never going to happen. They came into Copenhagen with a top-down idea of how to impose restrictions on countries and people weren't going to live with that. All that's changed. Things are different. There's a different political dynamic. President Obama and President Xi have both shown that they're willing to make a, a real agreement on this. But the there are still major fundamental difficulties here. I was in Bonn a couple of weeks ago at the last meeting before the Paris meeting, and the tensions there between the richer and the poorer countries were exactly the same as they were several years ago. The richer countries saying, look, we want everybody to shoulder, put their shoulders to the wheel. That means China, Brazil, the emerging economies. The poorer countries saying, actually, the majority of the lifting should be done by you, the richer countries. Those divisions were still apparent, still divided. They've got a 50-page document, which is better than 300 pages, I grant you, but 50 pages into a comprehensive 8 to 10 page agreement is still a long way away. So I think there's there's a lot of political spin going on out there. Everybody is trying to push the fact that there will be a deal. I've been quite optimistic, I think, in recent times that a deal would be done. But I think in the last couple of weeks, I feel they will get an agreement, but I think it may not be much more than what they got in Copenhagen. And I think people will feel a great sense of letdown if that happens. It's not certain that that will happen, but I think there are certain 
indicators that might indicate that that might happen. I wonder if you could give us an idea of how the power dynamic is structured. Is it one country against another, meaning is it the U.S. in a standoff against another country? And and apparently it's not China at this moment because of uh, the deal that Obama made with China prior to going into this conference. China has agreed to bring down its emissions. Or is it, as you said, a division between, say, the richer countries and the poorer countries? I, I guess I'm wondering if there's a standoff Who's on either side of that line? Yeah, it's a very complicated mosaic, to be honest with you. There, it, we, we talk about developed and developing countries in a simple black and white way. And it really, it is that in some ways, but in many ways, it's much more complicated. You've got alliances of countries. You've got different groupings. For instance, the, the group of the poorest countries is called G77 plus China. So China, which uh, sits at the top table on many things, also sits with the group of developing countries, the poorest 134 countries in the world. There's also, you know, a variety of different alliances between richer and poorer countries that cross the boundaries of rich and poor. And and so getting an agreement will involve an incredible political jigsaw building exercise, really, because at the end of the day, this is about getting agreement, getting consensus, global consensus. You need 195 countries to agree. Nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. And that means all those parties with all those differing interests need to be able to sit around around one piece of paper and say, yeah, I'll sign this, I'll go with it. Until that happens, there will be no deal in Paris. Goodness. Well, interesting. You're hinting at the two hats that China has opted to wear, and one is the role of the poor country. But isn't it true that China leads the world in global emissions now? Yes, since 2009, actually, the developing countries have led the world in the emissions. The emissions that they're producing now exceed what the, the Western or developed world have produced. And, and this is one of the key things that um, gets the annoyance of the richer countries, because the way that the UN climate organization is set up is based on what the world was like in 1992, when a small group of countries, around 20 or so, took on promises to cut their emissions. The world has hugely changed since then. China and India and other countries, they don't have any obligations to cut their emissions. The US and the European Union and others, they say, look, it's time the world has changed. We need a new tally of the world. We need a new dispensation about who does what. And they really feel that's unfair and they want China, Brazil, Mexico and others to take on. Those countries have all indicated they're willing to take on those commitments. And so has India, for instance. India says it's willing to take on changes and and go to renewables, etc. For the richer countries, for the United States and Europe, they want to see that greater sense of equality. That many of the poorer countries, this issue they which they call equity in the in the terms of the negotiation. This is something on which they will fight to their last breath because, you know, it has such serious consequences for for their development going forward. And they feel that they're being now made to carry the can for the richer countries having the free use, if you like, of fossil fuels for 200 years. And suddenly they turn around at the end of it and say to the poorer guys, hey, we think these fossil fuels are a bad idea. You shouldn't use them. And that they see that as a really quite a bit cheeky. Now, Pope Francis presented his encyclical this summer, and he was in the United States to great fanfare uh, for about a week or so in New York and Philadelphia. Will he be in Paris? Do you, do you think that you will spot the Pope? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. And, and we have played this game a lot recently in the in the office here, wondering, you know, will he come? Will he not come? There's no indications at the moment that he's going to come. But, uh, you know, he, he is technically, I think, the head of state so of the Vatican City. So he could technically be a global leader who could come there. And particularly since he has given such an importance to care of the climate, care of the environment in his encyclical during the summer in Laudate Si, uh, you know, showing not just that he cares about it, but that he really understands it. You know, if you read that encyclical, you see uh, the the words of a man who's really gotten to grips with the understanding, the physics, the chemistry, the science behind it. So I think it would give a real moral boost to the um, conference if he did come. I can understand why he he may not want to come. Um, And so that's still in the balance. But I, I think the moral strength that's come from Pope Francis and also from the Islamic leaders calling for a deal, from Buddhist leaders calling for a deal, all that is adding to, I suppose, the greater popular sense that people around the world really want a deal and will live with a deal. Whether that translates into the type of deal they want when the politicians are fill, filling the rooms late into the night, when they're down to the, to the red lines of their negotiation, when they're down to the wire about what they can and cannot do, whether that moral message will come through to them and carry weight, I don't know. 
Well, finally, Matt, let's say that this agreement is reached and all these goals are met, Mm. which is a highly optimistic interpretation of, of how things might unfold. How might the world have changed when the conference ends? What will the world look like then? I, I think that, you know, the, if, if it's a very strong deal that comes out of Paris and people are hoping that it would be, I think the, the, the most fundamental change will be that we will put sustainability at the heart of everything. That really the idea of just using the Earth's resources without care or without thoughts for the future will simply have to change. And so we will see restrictions on fossil fuel usage. We'll see people moving away to renewable energy as the major source of their power. We'll see changes in agriculture. We'll see changes in, in consumption. But I think one of the things that people really feel is that they can do this right. If they can get the the threads of this together, then most people in most parts of their life just won't notice a major difference. There'll be changes. There'll be changes in the way that power is generated. There'll be changes in the nature of the way that things are grown and, and, and produced. But it will not be down to the level of big brother in your house every day telling you what power to switch on and, and which power to switch off. I think the idea is that you can craft the deal, you can bend the curve in terms of emissions going forward, you can you can make that happen and still allow people to grow their economies. That's the magic formula they're searching for. Cut emissions end climate change in its most dangerous form and allow countries to grow. If they can get that formula together, that will be world-changing. Matt, thank you so much for speaking with us. My pleasure. Matt McGraw is the environmental correspondent for the BBC. He's based in London, but look for his reports from Paris during the climate conference. Well, one of the themes we've been hearing in this show is about the fate of the poor and developing countries in the face of climate change, that they will be the hardest hit, and that the Pope may not be in Paris, but his message as delivered through the encyclical may. And certainly another interesting thing is this two degrees Celsius limit. They don't want to go to three. They don't want to go to four. That's because the system is nonlinear and kind of unpredictable, perhaps, at this stage. If you went to four or five degrees, what would happen? I don't think anybody knows, but it could result in the kind of catastrophic effect that Dreyfout talks about where you melt enough of the Greenland ice to shut down the Gulf Stream. At any rate, there's a lot at stake at this meeting in Paris, so it will be interesting to see what develops. Thanks to those who helped produce the show, there's no need for a conversation about this. We couldn't do it without Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. Also, thanks to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, where scientists study the origin and nature of life. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to climate conversation. If you'd like to hear other episodes of Big Picture Science, well, you'll find them in our archive at bigpicturescience.org. And if you're a podcast listener, but you prefer listening to over the air radio because you just like a bit of change from your usual web-based existence, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, we'll consider letting them know that you like the show. And do you have a comment, a criticism, or a suggestion? Well, throw in some faint praise and then email it all to bigpicturescience at SETI.org. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.